0: Have you ever had one of those nightmares in which you know you're in danger, like you can't see the danger, but you just feel it and you're in a really dark room. And when you go to turn on the lights, either the lights don't work or once they do work and the lights come on, the darkness just kind of slowly swallows the light in this like grainy, dark blackness and everything gets dim and shrouded in this evil, almost living darkness, almost as if the darkness is stronger than the light. And then you're left in that same dark, dangerous place, vulnerable and exposed, as you realize that the safety of the light is fleeting. This is The Awkward Apocalypse, a deconstruction podcast that examines Christian culture against the authority of Scripture. I'm Corey Kuhn, and today I want to talk about a Christian's interaction with the secular world. This is the catchy theme song. This is the catchy theme song. On my first mission trip ever, We went to this children's home in Haiti. Before entering the facility, we were warned multiple times about the dangers of this new disease we had never encountered before called scabies. Our leader described the nature of the disease and all its nasty details about how the bugs will burrow into your skin and you'll experience this burning, itching sensation wherever they decide to nuzzle up in your skin and lay their eggs. And we were all understandably freaked out. So, the moment we'd climb back into the van after interacting with all the kids and having them like sit in our laps and hold our hands and, you know, play with our hair and things like that, we'd get back into the van and immediately start bathing in Germex, like rubbing it all over our arms, our legs, our neck, like maybe even our face. And I will say that, yeah, we were being cautious and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not casting judgment or anything like that. But I guess since then, I have lived at one of these homes for almost a year. And when I was living at the children's home, I had a skin disease, like almost all the time. It's just like normal. You just have like antifungal cream by the bed and it's just like, oh, where's the skin disease today? And, And that's heightened during rainy season where everything's wet and moldy. like it's just kind of normal but it's really not that inconvenient honestly it's just kind of annoying when i did have scabies yeah it itched a lot but i remember it being pretty treatable like i think i just got a cream for it and then it was gone but we were freaked out at the time and we thought it was like this terrible disease that we could get from touching these kids we felt vulnerable and in some kind of danger so we did what we could to protect ourselves from that danger Sometimes I think that Christians look like this whenever they encounter the world or something secular, not all Christians, but some, they look at the world as like this filthy, nasty place full of debauchery and sin and temptation, and they consider their role in society to be one of separation and purity. They kind of keep away from anything that they would consider worldly because they believe that they could be corrupted if they allow themselves to be, you know, exposed to the things of the world. So they isolate their lives to church pews, Christian radio, Pure flicks, private school, and that Ark Encounter Museum somewhere in Kentucky. But where does this mentality come from? Is it biblical or is something else going on here? I've asked myself that question and thought about it for a really long time because I was convinced that something else was going on here. I was convinced that there's got to be something underlying here. Like, where does this come from? Like, I don't think that people just arbitrarily develop patterns and habits and beliefs. I think that they're rooted in something else. And so I was like, okay, this, this belief that this sort of mentality that Christians must live separate from the world and sort of protect themselves and shelter themselves has to come from somewhere. Is it biblical or is there something else going on here? And then one day when I was talking to one of my friends, it hit me. Okay, I'm going to go off on what might seem like a tangent, but I'm going somewhere with this. Just bear with me, I I just need to lay down a little bit of groundwork first. I want to talk for a moment about the Old Testament law, Now, there's a lot of debate about how exactly to understand it, but the position I take is pretty simple, and I believe this would be accepted by most theologians. Um, It started with, I I believe, Thomas Aquinas, and then later modified by the Reformers, Um, but it divides the Old Testament law into basically three categories. So, when you're reading the Old Testament and you come across the law section— There are three different types of laws in the Old Testament, mostly in the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And those three categories are ceremonial, civil, and moral. Now, basically the ceremonial laws are those that were given specifically to Israel and they pertain to the worship of God and purification rituals. So anything involving like staying clean or anything involving like specific ways to worship God in the temple and things like that, those are the ceremonial laws. Civil laws were given to dictate what would happen in daily life if certain situations arise, so basically how to govern society, how to resolve issues, and things like that. And yes, there is some overlap here. Not every law can be classified in one category only. Some of the laws would apply to multiple categories, but these are the main distinctions. The third distinction is moral. Now, these are like the Ten Commandments, and most people would say that any other principle that is given in the Old Testament that is carried over into the New Testament and still applies to us today are the moral laws. Now, as you can probably imagine, most theologians hold that ceremonial and civil laws no longer apply to us, while the moral laws still do. So only one category of laws in the Old Testament still applies to us, the moral one. Now, there are some schools of thought that say that the actual ceremonial and civil laws do apply to us today, but I think that would be the minority. Most people would say that the ceremonial and civil laws don't apply to us today, while the moral laws still do. Cool, so why do I bring this up? What does this have to do with Christians who avoid secular stuff? Well, you'll notice that I said the ceremonial and civil laws no longer apply to us today. And that immediately raises the question, why? Why don't these laws apply to us anymore? Like what happened that the God of the universe dictated these laws and now we just don't have to follow them? Why did that change? Like that's a big deal if you say, yeah, like uh, most of the laws that God gave us at one point in time don't actually apply to us anymore. Like the burden of proof is on you. Why? And that raises an important question, did God change his mind? Like, did God change his mind on what he does and doesn't want us to do? Like how he does and doesn't want us to act? And the answer is, well, not exactly. You see, those laws were given to a specific people, to Israel, a nation, a specific group of people who were considered to be the people of God, confined to national boundaries. And then when Christ came, he says in Matthew 5.17 that he came to fulfill the law, and the kingdom that he brought in was a kingdom that opened the door for all to be the people of God and all to be welcomed so that his people were no longer confined to national borders. So he broke down those walls and fulfilled the law. Now, what does it mean that he fulfilled the law? I honestly don't exactly know. We typically don't think of laws as something that one must fulfill. For example, if I approach a stop sign, and come to a complete stop before continuing, the stop sign doesn't just disappear. Or the next car can't just breeze past the sign and then tell the cop, hey that guy in front of me came to a full stop, so you know he fulfilled the law, so I'm no longer bound to it. Because simple obedience does not mean fulfillment. So when you really think about it, when Jesus says he fulfilled the law, there's a lot going on there, and it takes a while to unpack what exactly that meant. The book of Hebrews is probably one of the best resources for understanding this connection. But I just mentioned it in passing to point out that these laws do not apply to us as they did to the nation of Israel. Most theologians believe that only the moral laws in the Old Testament apply to us today because the other civil and ceremonial laws were fulfilled in Jesus, and we no longer live in the nation of Israel. Now, we can look at the civil and ceremonial laws and derive principles from them, like underlying principles about what God values, and then use those and apply those to our moral judgments, but the civil and ceremonial laws, for the most part, do not apply to us today because we no longer exist as a people of God living in a particular particular nation. Alright, so I'm halfway through this tangent. Let's take a moment and look a little more closely at the ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws are weird. If you've ever tried to read through the Bible in a year, you know what a speed bump Leviticus is. I mean, right? Like, that's where Bible reading plans go to die because it's boring. Like there's so many laws and like, the temple needs to be this many cubits by this many cubits. And like, there's weird stuff going on in Leviticus and in Exodus. And there's just so many laws and so many particulars that just kind of trip you up as you're reading. And if you're reading every single word of the Bible, that's gonna get really boring really fast. But in Leviticus, that's where a lot of the ceremonial laws are, which makes sense because Leviticus was written for the Levites who were the ceremonial priests. And Leviticus is pretty boring. As you're reading it, you'll notice a lot of obscure laws like not mixing fabrics or things like that. And the question I think any reasonable reader will have is why? Why are these laws here? Why were they laws in the first place? They don't really make a lot of sense to us. They're strange and seemingly random. But let me give you a tool to help you understand the purpose of these laws. This helped me a lot when when I would read these passages. I was bored at first, but then one day someone taught me to read these in a different way, and so I hope this helps you, and this is going to give some clarity to why I'm bringing this up. And that tool is understanding these laws through the lens of holiness. That's it. Holiness. Whenever you come across a strange passage and you're not sure how to understand its relevance, see it through the lens of God setting his people apart from other nations for the sake of their holiness. In a lot of ways, that was the purpose of these laws. Some laws exist as a direct contrast to other nations. The other nations are wicked. Israel is not. The other nations are unclean. Israel, therefore, should be clean. God gave these commandments to help set Israel apart from the other nations. So a lot of the practices that the other nations were doing were laws in Israel. Do not do these practices. And yes, it's kind of subjective. It's dependent on what the other nations are doing. And so we maintain that core principle of holiness as we go about living for God today, but it looks different. It doesn't play out in these specific ways that it did in the Old Testament. So I believe that seeing these laws through the lens of holiness helps us to understand the intent behind them better. So even if we don't understand the particulars of the laws, we can at least see behind them God's desire for holiness to set his people apart from the other nations. And that purpose of holiness remains today, although the individual laws do not. We are to be holy, set apart from the rest of the world, in a very profound and meaningful way. Now, here's why I bring all this up. Christians who shield themselves from the world have a curious resemblance to the mentality of Israel in the Old Testament. They operate within the world as if we are still living in Israel, and as if the purpose of our righteousness is to differentiate us from the world, to abstain from the world. And even in some circles, Christians will often reference Old Testament ceremonial laws, like not moral laws, but ceremonial laws, when they're giving justification for why they hold certain moral positions. So let me give you an example. Ask a Christian who believes that tattoos are wrong, why they believe tattoos are wrong and a lot of them will reference leviticus 19 28 which says that you must not cut your body or get tattoos this is clearly a ceremonial law and it's important to understand the context in which it was given but many christians will still use it to justify their position against tattoos so some christians even actually use old testament laws today as justification for why they hold certain positions but even if they don't And even if they understand that these laws no longer apply to us, at least the specific laws, many Christians still operate with this same mentality of Israel in the Old Testament. They operate as if we're still in Israel. Christ fulfilled the law, but not the status, the posture of Israel towards the world. I believe this is a misunderstanding of the purpose of the Old Testament law, and I think this is the reason why so many Christians live lives separate from the world. I think this is at the core of why so many Christians just kind of like avoid the world and live lives separate from the world is a misunderstanding of how to interpret and understand Old Testament Israel and what we are supposed to be like today. Because the call to Israel was to set themselves apart from the other nations, not to marry their wives and not to partake in their practices. So modern Christians apply that today and they're often rather hostile to the world and they avoid anything secular. So secular movies, they denounce yoga, reject any form of self-care, boycott monster energy drinks, skip football games, avoid secular books, refuse to dance, and avoid any environments with alcohol or cussing. They are functioning as if they are Israel, sheltering themselves from the world. This is their understanding of holiness. And I believe this is a flawed understanding of holiness and how we're to apply it to our Christian lives. It's a mentality that posits Christians as living like Israel, which is probably why Christian nationalism is so prevalent. To imagine ourselves as a collective people of God, a nation set apart for his glory, a city on a hill. A holy people abstaining from the wickedness of the world is natural for Christians who hold this belief that we're operating like Israel in the Old Testament. And that's why for a lot of Christian nationalists, you'll see them applying Old Testament passages where God says he's going to punish the nation for them straying from his truth, for them not following his commandments. So they apply the way that God operated in the Old Testament towards the nation of Israel to the nation of America. And I think that's one of the reasons why Christian nationalism is so prevalent is because of this mentality that sees Christians as living almost as if we're in ancient Israel. And I think that kind of gets at the core of why Christians live this way, why they separate themselves from the world, and why Christian nationalism is so prevalent. Now, before we go any further, I think it's important we acknowledge something you're probably already thinking. Doesn't the New Testament also teach us to be holy, to be set apart from the world? Because there are some verses in the New Testament that do apply here. Jesus tells us to be holy, and all over John's writings is this spiritual dualism that sets us apart as the people of God from the world. John tells us not to love the world or the things of the world. Paul tells us to set our minds on the things of the spirit and not on the things of the flesh. James tells us not to become friends of the world. And he even says that pure religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So is this correct? Like, is this how we are to live as Christians? Like, am I trying to dismantle something that is actually biblical? Like, don't these shelter Christians who avoid anything that they would deem secular kind of have a point? Well, yes and no. This is a classic example of keeping the letter of the law, but not the spirit. And I think that's really the key here, because like I said, it goes back to our understanding of holiness and how that applies to how we function within the world. And so I think they keep the letter of the law, Of holiness but not the spirit of the law in other words this is an example of going around and collecting a bunch of car parts but never actually assembling a car or driving anywhere with it it's important to ask what is the point of the holiness that jesus and john and james and paul are advocating what is at the core of this principle is it protection for the christian as many seem to understand it Or is it something else? Like, is there something else going on here besides just protecting Christians from the world, from being corrupted by the world? Because something is off about the way that these Christians separate themselves from the world. Actually, I would say there are two things. Here are the two main issues I have with this mentality. First, it presupposes a Christian's righteousness. It's such a prideful position to hold, to elevate yourself above the dirty, filthy, nasty world with all its sin and brokenness, and to hold yourself as the pure and unstained example of godliness. It just reeks of pharisaical self-righteousness, and the more I think about it, the more wrong it seems. And just on the side, this type of thinking, the thinking that says you're safe from the world and all its sin if you isolate yourself within a Christian bubble where everything you consume or are exposed to is quote-unquote safe, that's a recipe for abuse. Because those who are abused will be too confused at the contradiction of being in a safe place but not experiencing safety. It's really confusing for someone who actually believes that within a Christian environment, they're safe from all the nasty, sinful world and all its fallenness. And I think it will be more difficult to properly categorize it as abuse. So it creates an environment where chronic abuse can take place and nobody will know about it or recognize it for a very long time. Now, that's a topic for another day, but I thought that was just worth mentioning because it's really important we understand what are the consequences of considering Christian areas to be safe. Because I think what we've learned recently, as we look at the scandals within the church, whether it be Ravi Zacharias, the Baptist church, or the Catholic church, those areas, people all believed they were safe because they were sort of inside that Christian bubble. And we now know they were the literal opposite of safe. And those institutions, in a lot of ways, actually harm them as they tried to get help. And so i think that's a lesson for all of us here that christian environments are not necessarily safe as we often think of them but for a lot of people who live this way that's kind of how they see it the world is where all the sin and fallenness is but these christian circles and christian media christian music that's all safe and i think within that is just this sort of inherent unwarranted self-righteousness so that's the first thing that really stinks to me about this mentality The second thing is that it assumes Christians to be these like weak, fragile little souls who will be tainted and corrupted by the world if they come in contact with it too much. Now, I talked about this in my cussing episode, but I think it's just worth bringing up again that Christians just seem to think they're so fragile like they just can't be exposed to anything worldly because it's going to affect them too much like i remember when i was in middle school there was this girl who kept saying oh my god all the time and i remember sitting there like all right Corey, you can do it this is your christian witness in the world and i like hyped myself up and then finally looked at her and was like can you please stop saying that And she was like, what? I was like, can you please stop saying, oh my God, you're taking God's name in vain. And it's like in that moment, I thought I was doing a good thing because I was fixing my environment so that it was safer for me. So I didn't have to be exposed to someone taking God's name in vain. And I also thought it was good that I was correcting the world. So here you actually see both of these elements coming out. Number one, you see my self-righteousness coming out as I correct other people in their behavior. And then you also see my weak, fragile spirit, unable to tolerate other people saying words that i don't like and i think both of these are not really right like that doesn't mean that christians can just expose themselves to anything and they're gonna come out okay Like Jesus himself says the eye is a lamp of the body and you know what you are looking at that, that determines the light or the darkness within you. So you do need to be careful about what you expose yourself to. So I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that I think these types of Christians tend to think they are weaker and more fragile than they actually are because Christians are commanded to be the bringers of light into the darkness. And if you've ever seen light enter darkness, you'll notice that there's no competition. Jesus says in Matthew 5 to let your light shine and not to hide it and he doesn't say all the light gather in one area and let it shine brightly there while the world remains in its darkness instead he says to let your light shine he says it's bad to hide it under a basket which is what I think a lot of these Christians are doing when they isolate themselves to only Christian areas I think they are keeping their light away from the darkness and the darkness needs the light and you'll notice that anytime light and darkness battle it's not a competition. The light wins every single time. There is no darkness that is more powerful than light because it's nothing. When light enters darkness, it overcomes it immediately. There's no competition. It just wins. The darkness cannot fight it. And that's contrary to the dream that I brought up at the beginning of this episode, because in my dreams, the darkness actually has like a life of its own. And so I think that's how a lot of Christians tend to think of the darkness in the world, almost as if it has a life of its own. And even though you're shining your light, it overcomes you. And so you have to isolate yourself. You have to hide from all the danger to keep the darkness from consuming the light that you have. And I just don't think that's how it is. I think that when we let our light shine in the darkness, it wins. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the power that we all have is the power of Jesus living inside us to overcome the darkness. And I think the heart of a Christian is stronger than we often believe. I think that once we harness and understand that power that we have, and I would argue that sheltering yourself from the world is doing exactly what Jesus said not to. It's hiding your light under a basket. But Jesus said to let your light shine And the way that Christians let their light shine into the darkness can be done in a way that is holy. And I think that's the key here. See, I believe that the key here to this type of holiness is love. John says not to love the things of the world, not to avoid the things of the world entirely. James says not to be a friend of the world, not to run away from the world. He also says to keep oneself unstained from the world. That doesn't mean you can't be around it. See, the holiness that Christians are to have is a holiness that is rooted in a deep love for God and his spirit and the things of God, not a fear of corruption and a fear of the world. See, Jesus calls us to love our enemies, not run away and hide from them. This love requires experiencing the world without conforming to it. It is a careful balance that can be dangerous, yes. There are temptations and we have to be careful letting alcoholics venture into bars for example. There is wisdom to this and yes this applies to children as well. Like. Children are very impressionable and it is important to protect children from certain parts of the world because they don't have those categories to determine this is good. This is bad. I need to indulge in this. I don't need to indulge in this. Like, yes, children are fragile and vulnerable and impressionable. And so in some ways we do need to shelter and protect children. I'm not saying just let loose and expose yourself to literally everything, but on the other extreme, that doesn't mean we just run away and hide. Our holiness is not to be predicated on a deep sense of self-righteousness and fragility. Instead, it should be grounded in love, humility, and kindness. And it is a type of love that is strong and can enter the world and let that light shine so that it overcomes the darkness. See, this actually relates to the ceremonial laws for cleanliness. And a lot of those laws, if you come into contact with something unclean, you are now unclean and must go through like a ritual cleansing, a ceremony to purify yourself before you can come before God. But that isn't the case anymore. Now Jesus came and when the unclean woman touched Jesus, he did not become unclean, she became clean. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial laws of cleanliness by offering us perpetual cleanliness that actually fights the filthiness of the world. It no longer overcomes us like the darkness in my nightmares. Instead, now the cleanliness enters the world and overcomes the darkness. It's like a Dragon Ball Z fight or a Harry Potter fight or tug of war when you have two forces going head to head and then one side is kind of like pulling on the other, but then Jesus steps in and starts pulling the rope in the other direction. That's what happened when Jesus came. Delight one. And like I said earlier, I don't exactly understand completely what Jesus meant when he said he came to fulfill the law. But I do know this. In Romans 13, Paul says that to love one another is to fulfill the law. That all the commandments can be summarized in that simple saying that Jesus gave us. To love our neighbor. And the core problem with a Christian lifestyle that seeks to isolate itself from the dirty, filthy world is really that it just lacks love it's holiness without love, so it's not godly holiness. And a law that lacks love and a holiness that lacks love is not a Christian law or a Christian holiness at all. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the work that we do, feel free to visit standingsidebyside.org. If you'd like to make a donation, there's a donate tab on that page, or you can just Venmo at standing side by side. That's one word. There's background noise right now. There's like a million kids at my house and I'm just pushing through this episode. So hopefully you couldn't hear that while I was talking. Uh, If it was a distraction, I apologize. Sometimes this is just the reality of living here. It's just an insanely loud place. Speaking of which, if you'd like to follow us and the work that we're doing here, we have an Instagram account for Standing Side by Side. Or if you'd like a more personal take, you can follow my personal page, which is pa.pancake. That's P-A.pancake, which is my nickname here and what everyone calls me. And you'll see more of my insights into the culture and the work that's going on here. Thank you so much for listening. Keep the faith.